This is the official Saster podcast brought to you by me, Harry Stebbings, at H Stebbings with two Bs on Snapchat, and the one and only Jason Lemkin at Jason LK on Twitter. It'd be fantastic to see you on those respective platforms, and always a fantastic read reading Jason's Twitter feed. However, to the show today, and I'm not sure we've ever had a founder on the show who's quite had so many successful exits. At present, our guest today has had five. Yes, I'm thrilled to welcome Oren Hoffman, founder and CEO at SafeGraph, the startup that is unlocking the world's most powerful data so that machines and humans humans can answer society's toughest questions. And they have backing from the likes of Naval Ravikant and prior guests of the show, including Signalfire, IDG Ventures, and David Brunitsky, just to name a few. As I said, prior to Safegraph, Oren has an astonishing five successful exits under his belt, with one being LiveRamp, sold to Axion for $310 million in 2014. And if that wasn't enough, Oren's also a prolific angel investor, with a portfolio including the likes of Thumbtack, Rainforest QA, Brightroll, and Groupon, just to name a few. I do also want to say a massive thank you to Jason Lemkin for the intro to Oren today, without which this episode would not have been possible. But before we head into the show today, I want to tell you about WePay. WePay helps online platforms increase revenue through integrated payments processing. Constant Contact, Equid, and GoFundMe use WePay. Why? Because WePay uniquely helps platforms offer ROI-positive integrated payments to their users, within their UX and without taking on fraud and regulatory exposure. Others make you trade off between UX friction or fraud, not WePay. WePay. WePay also offers award-winning support and can even work with your team through Slack or Zendesk. Get the payments revenue you want without getting bogged down every time a user has a payments question. But don't trust me. Visit WePay.com forward slash Harry for a video case study on how Equid grew its revenue while better serving customers with WePay. That's WePay.com forward slash Harry. You'll also be made eligible for a year of free premium support with WePay.com forward slash Harry. And if WePay helps you navigate the world of payments, what about the same for mentorship? Say you hired a bunch of good engineers, and the best way to retain them is to have a good leadership in place. That's where Plato can help. Plato is on a mission to help engineers and engineering managers become great engineering leaders by finding them the perfect mentor. Mentors are great engineering leaders working at Google, Facebook, Lyft, Slack, Trello, you name it. And for a monthly fee, you have unlimited mentorship, advice, and coaching from them in order to help resolving challenging management situations as they arise in real time. Simply head over to PlatoHQ.com to check it out. But enough from me, so I'm now delighted to hand over to Oren Hoffman, founder and CEO at SafeGraph. Good. That's perfect. Okay, I think we're warmed up. Oren, it's absolutely fantastic to have you on the show today. A big hand to Jason at Sasta for the intro, but thank you so much for joining me today, Oren. Oh, happy to be here. I'd love to kick off today, though, with a little bit about you and how you came to found one of the hottest SaaS startups with SafeGraph. Well, uh, I was uh, started off as a software engineer, started my first internet company in college, and we sold that about a year after graduation, and then ultimately ended up starting LiveRamp, which we sold in 2014, and I ended up leaving LiveRamp in 2015, and then started my current company, SafeGraph, in 2016. What was the kind of a founding idea and kind of a collaborative movement towards the coming together of SafeGraph in the early days? Well, the big idea is that to make innovation happen, we need to have lots of access to data and data could potentially just live in a small number of companies like Google or Facebook or Tencent or something like that, mm-hmm. or it could be available to everybody for innovation. And, you know, we prefer the, the, the second type of world. And so we're building a company to 
promote that world. Indeed, I think I think everyone would rather the second option. But I, I do want to start today with one of the most common problems that we get written in from listeners of the show about being building sales teams. And and I've been a big fan of your core posts. For anyone that hasn't read them, that really is a must read, and we'll attach oh, links in the show notes. Uh, but you've said before that there are two types of successful salespeople. Tell me, what are those two types, and and what really are their character profiles? Well, there's these the relationship oriented salespeople, and then there's these product oriented salespeople. And the relationship oriented salespeople are, are kind of the classic sales profile. It's extroverted. They take people to sporting events, at the steak dinners, etc. The product oriented salesperson is a little bit more introverted. They're more technical. They're more focused on process. I do have to ask: Can they be both? Certainly. So obviously, the best salesperson would be both, and those are both really important things to have. But normally, people have they're they're in more one camp than the other. Mm-hmm. So people have certain skills that they have, and then they kind of continue to hone and develop those skills. How do you know which one's right for your SaaS startup? I think you need to understand the type of company that you are. So a relationship-oriented salesperson is going to be much more important if you're in a super competitive space where there's less differentiation between products. So that'd be like selling video ads to agencies, or that could be in any any type of scenario where you're in a very, very competitive space and where relationships become really important. Uh, a product-oriented salesperson is much more important in a less competitive space where there's a high level of differentiation between the competition and where the product is extremely technically difficult to understand and you're going to need someone to really kind of work you through and really help you get at the best thing for your organization. I recently had Alex McCaw at Clearbit on the show and he said that we would continue to see the unprecedented rise of engineering-led sales teams. What do you make of kind of engineering-led sales teams first on a meta perspective and then be the continued rise and dominance of them with time? Well, I think you just need to understand the type of business that you're in. So if you're in a business that's highly technical, you're probably going to need more product-oriented salesperson. It doesn't mean that person's necessarily an engineer. They may have not coded, but they have to be fairly technical. They do have to, they're the type of person that doesn't necessarily need a sales engineer to work with them to get the sale done. But the relationship-oriented salesperson is still going to be incredibly important for a lot of other industries. And so there's a lot of industries where, um, where the relationship is the core most important thing to the sale. And so you, you just need to understand which market that you're in. How do these very different sales personas interact differently with the very differing elements of the organization from marketing to product to customer success? Are there clear differentiations in their interactions with them? Yeah, absolutely. The product-oriented salesperson is generally going to be much more involved with making the product better. They're going to be more involved with engineering, more involved with product, more involved with R&D. They're going to be thinking about things in, in a different way than the relationship-oriented salesperson, which is going to be much more outwardly focused. Do their attitude to compensation vary, do you think? I don't think so. I think in, in both cases, they can both be incredibly successful. And, and by the way, this is not pejorative. Like They're both very important skills to have. And in certain companies, one skill will dominate over the other. A product-oriented salesperson will not be successful in a scenario where a relationship-oriented salesperson should be more successful and vice versa. So it's really important to understand what company you have, and then all of your salespeople should be in the category that fits your company's needs. Speaking of sales, though, there, we often hear from the likes of 
uh, Mark Andreessen and, and of course the one and only Jason Lemkin that the biggest mistake SaaS startups make is to underprice. Now I'm really interested because in our chat prior to this you presented an alternative view. So what's the alternative view to always having to have a very high price? Well I agree that most of the smartest people in SaaS give the advice that SaaS companies should raise prices and, and that's good advice for most SaaS companies but it's not good advice if you're in a winner take most market. So in winner take most markets you want to do everything possible to ensure that you're the winner. And in this case, you want to essentially lower your prices potentially every year, not raise them. So you don't give an opportunity for anyone else to enter the market. That That's basically like the classic Amazon strategy rather than the traditional SaaS strategy. So the first thing you need to understand is whether you're in a winner-take-most market. Most SaaS companies are not. Most SaaS companies are highly competitive and are not winner-take-most. So you need to be honest with yourself. But if you have relationship-oriented salespeople, you're probably not in a winner-take-most market. In B2B, contrary to popular belief, the less the competition, the the lower the prices. Why is that? Talk to me. Does that not go completely contra all my economic learnings from the past 10 years? Well, you don't want to give an opportunity for someone else to enter into the market. So if you're in a winner-take-most market, it's in your best interest to actually keep prices quite low. And if you're in a winner-take-most market, your sales and marketing costs are going to be really, really small as compared to other SaaS companies. And so you can afford to lower prices. The main reason why most SaaS companies have to raise prices so much is because their sales and marketing costs are so high. Can I ask, you said there obviously about uh, not having to have such high prices. Is there also ways if you lower the price to kind of arbitrage the pricing with uh, longer contract extensions that may be a multi-year instead of year? Or would you not suggest that? Sure, absolutely. Having multi-year contracts is good. Having happy customers is, is the most important thing. So the more you can spend on your product, the happier your customer is going to be, the more likely you are going to be to remain the winner in that winner-take-most market. And, and you spoke about kind of the inherent sales and marketing costs. I'm interested. How do you view the ratio of sales and marketing expense to total revenue? Well, the very best SaaS companies should have sales and marketing costs which, as a percentage of revenue that go down every year. So as a company, your goal is to spend as much money as possible on R&D, which is where your real moat is going to be. Unfortunately, most SaaS companies spend well under 50% of their expenses on the actual product, and most of their money is going to sales and marketing. You said about a, a moat there. Can a brand be a really IP-heavy moat for B2B companies in today's B2B world, like it is in consumer, or do you still think it's very much on the R&D and technology perspective? Brand is a really important thing, and, and it's in, it's incredibly important as a moat. The brand is an extension often of the product too, though, and so the brand is basically about having lots of happy customers who love your product. Uh, in terms of the pricing itself, though, David Skok stated on the show that all good SaaS products will have at least one variable pricing axis. I'm, I'm, I'm interested, to what extent do you agree with this statement? Well, I think if you have a real long-term outlook, your goal is to truly serve your customers. And, and part of the way you truly serve your customers is that you want pricing to be clear. So you promoting a confusing pricing strategy might be a good way to like goose your numbers in the short term, but long term, it's probably going to build some customer resentment. How do you evaluate usage-based pricing? It's always a very hard one for me when SaaS startups pitch me, and I always feel there's kind of an inherent disincentive with usage-based pricing in terms of people are discouraged from using the product as much as they maybe would do because of the increase and step up in pricing. How do you evaluate usage-based pricing? 
Well, I think it really just depends on the the type of company that you are. And there's certainly a lot of really successful API companies like Twilio or something like that that have usage-based pricing and, and that works really well for them. So I don't think there's anything inherently bad or good about usage-based pricing. As long as it's clear and that customers understand it, then it could be really good. Sometimes for certain types of products, there's actually a relatively high cost to, uh, to serve a customer. So if you think of AWS, they have a very high cost to serve customers. And so they have to charge some sort of usage-based pricing to be able to uh, deal with those costs. So if we get the right pricing mechanism, we get the right brand, we get the right salesperson, the traditional notion would be we can expand aggressively. Uh, but you've said before that having fewer employees can allow you to actually grow faster. Talk to me about this and, and kind of the contrarian thesis behind this. Well, first, I think first you need to understand why do you hire people in the first place? And, and the main reason, really, the only main reason to hire people is a way of getting leverage. So um, your current team will have more resources to get more done and you can grow faster. But hiring people comes with a cost. And that cost is that it adds a lot of communication problems in the organization. In the worst case scenario, you've got some sort of N squared communication problem where N is the number of the employees. Best case scenario, best run company, you probably have N over two, maybe N over three, which is still not great. As you scale the team, you're going to have a lot more communication problems. But if your goal is to get leverage, there are other ways to get leverage besides hiring employees. You can outsource functions, you can employ vendors, you can build or buy technology, you can use APIs. So my belief is that you should use these kind of service-oriented companies, these APIs, first before adding employees so that you don't run into as many communication problems. Where have you found kind of the inflection points and the breaking moments to be in the scaling of SaaS startups? Is it kind of Dunbar's theory at 150? Is it when you get to 30 people and suddenly you've got managers of managers? Where do you find the kind of inflection and breaking points within communication of teams? Well, every person you add, when you go from one to two, you're going to have communication problems. When you go from two to four, you have communication problems. So every single step up, you're going to have more communication problems. And so the fewer people, the better that you can communicate. If you can get everybody in one room or sitting around one table, it's a lot easier for you to, to work together. Now, there are ways to scale smart. And so if you think of, of Amazon, they have this kind of two pizza team role. They have relatively small teams and they essentially have some sort of like clear inputs or clear APIs between those teams to communicate to one another. And that's another way of being able to scale. And so they probably have a less communication problems as they scale, but still anybody who scales will have some communication issues as they scale. What have you found from, from your operating experience to really personally make a meaningful difference in terms of the collaboration and communication within your team? Well, I think the most important thing is being able to have a really, really incredibly talented people who have a high expectation of themselves and have a high expectation of others. The best teams are the ones where people have both of those things. So if you have the lower expectation of yourself and high expectation of others, then you, you essentially kind of a hypocrite. If you have high expectation of yourself, but low expectation of others, then you kind of have this hero syndrome where you try to take everything on your shoulders. And so the ideal scenario is you have both high expectations of yourself and very high expectation of the others around you. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I'm intrigued. How do you balance happiness with immensely high expectations? Often they can be uh, contra in terms of always striving for more. Is there a way that you personally prevent the kind of dissatisfaction internally with always having to strive for more? Well, I, th I think people 
who are inherently want to build things and are inherent builders are often very happy when they're building. Uh, and so I think if people are doing work that's very rewarding for them, they're generally going to be very happy, especially if they're working with really talented people. Mm-hmm. I'd love to dive into a quick fire round with you, though, now. Uh, or in 60 seconds, Sasta. So 60 seconds per statement. How does that sound? That sounds great. So what hires do you wish you had made earlier? Well, LiveRamp, we took way too long to build out our customer success function. I wish I did that earlier. When's the right time? Probably at like 2 million ARR. And I, we, we waited probably till we had like 20 million. Wow. That's a, that's a hefty scaling. Um, <laughs> but how have you seen then early stage SaaS startups go wrong most often? They don't develop a niche where they can dominate. And instead, they get sucked into these feature wars where they're becoming these incredibly competitive situations. How can startups differentiate? Because, you know, being, being a VC now, I feel sometimes very sorry for startups who are told, you know, start in a niche and expand. And then you've got the alternative of the VC perspective where they, as a result, say, oh, you're just a feature. How can you start in a niche and really own that without being a feature? Well, I think if you can dominate a niche, you should be able to, if you have a smart team, you should be able to be able to expand outside of that niche. So I think the the core thing from a venture capitalist is to figure out if you believe they can dominate the niche, you have to evaluate the team. If you think the team is smart enough, once they're no longer growing at 100% year over year to move to a new niche, then you want to invest in them. If you don't think that team is smart enough, you don't want to invest. I think often when VCs don't invest in companies that are going after a niche, it's not because they don't like the market, it's because they don't like the team. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, always a tough thing to retail to the founder. Uh, that's the tough That's one. correct. So they usually tell the founder they don't like the market when they actually don't like the team. Mm. Yes, I've never done that myself. <laughs> um, <laughs> moving, moving swiftly on, um, party rounds. What are your thoughts, pros and cons? I'm pro. Why? Because that's a controversial thesis. I think it's good to have more people who are rooting for your success. So if you can get more people who are rooting for your success, that's great. And even if they put a small amount of money into your company, they're probably rooting for your success. And as a startup, you want as many people as possible rooting for your success. With such low ownership, do they have the incentive to really help you in a meaningful way like a, a lead investor would do? Certainly lead investors are great and it's, it's great to have those as well. But if you can get a lot of people in addition to the lead investor who can help you, I think that's really great. And um, they might not be thinking about you all the time if they put in a small amount of money, but they will take your call and they will help if you have something that you need help from that month. Mm-hmm. What do you know now that you wish you'd known at the beginning? Now we can determine beginning in a couple of different ways. It could be the beginning of live ramp. Uh, I think beginning of birth would be uh, rather strenuous. So or the beginning of SaaS career. So whichever one fits your thesis, what do you wish you'd known at the beginning that you know now? Well, a very new learning I have is that I think most people grow much faster through specific positive feedback than they grow through constructive or when you like point out flaws type of feedback. And so I wish in my earlier days of managing people that I focus much more on giving them very specific positive feedback. How do you give negative feedback? Well, I think you can, I think the better way than giving negative feedback is actually giving specific positive feedback. And specific positive feedback doesn't mean, hey, you did a great job on that presentation. That That's great to say. And I, I certainly encourage people to say that. That's just general positive feedback. But telling them, hey, look, did you notice that when you did this, when you had this particular 
PowerPoint presentation, you did this particular slide and you were able to get the audience into a, a particular type of zone that allowed them to do this thing, et cetera. That's the type of feedback that can be really, really helpful to people. Sorry, I have to dig in on this. So we have an employee who does a terrible pitch. I mean, this is like categorically bad, the worst pitch in the world. And very, very little is right with it. I mean, what do you say? I mean, you walked in with confidence. That was a good start. How does, do you know what I mean? How does one embody that feedback? Well, if someone's absolutely terrible at doing something, then I wouldn't have them do that particular thing. I would have people focus on things that they're actually good at and, and help them go from good to great on those things. Focus on the, if they're terrible at presenting orally, but great at presenting via written means, then focus on the written thing first, make them much, much, much better at that. And then maybe slowly they can gain in other areas. And, and speaking of incompetent people, uh, the people that have to lead these sometimes, very rarely though, uh, incompetent people is the CEO. And moving out of the quickfire round, uh, I'd love to discuss kind of the role of the CEO. I often hear that they should strive to be the laziest people in the company and delegate everything. But you've said to me before with a a teaser that there's one element that CEOs must never delegate. What is that? Well, I think CEOs should not delegate human resources or HR. HR is actually the most important function in most companies. And I'm not talking about compliance or payroll or benefits, even though all those things are very important. A great HR person is a capital allocator, and the CEO really only has two functions. So one of those functions is core strategic vision, and the second is capital allocation. And so the goal of HR is to employ the companies, to deploy the company's capital in basically the most valuable assets that the company has, which is its people. So an HR leader makes investments in the company's assets, they grow the company's assets, they retain the company's assets, they redeploy those company assets, they prune the low-performing assets. They bring in more high-performing and high-quality assets. This is extremely strategic. And outside of the core company strategy, this is the area that the CEO should be thinking about all the time. In terms of capital allocation, I always think the most challenging element is the balance, the balance of the immediacy of now versus thinking for the future for the six to 18 months ahead. How do you view the balance between the, the kind of planning and forecasting for the here and now versus the future? All good companies should be focused on the future future as much as possible. The more you can focus on the future, the more advantage you're going to have against your competition because most companies can't focus on the future. I had Matt Strauss at Namely uh, on the show recently, and he suggested that when you cross between 100 to 150, you should really think about hiring a head of HR. Do you agree with this? And, and how do you envision the role of head of HR and CEO playing out in an optimal fashion? The very best person you have at hiring, managing, and growing talent should be your head of HR. So the head of HR should be amazing about those things because they have an inherent advantage because that's their job. So the HR organization, the HR org, should be by far the best run org in your company. Now, unfortunately, that's not the case in most companies. In some companies, it's actually the worst run org. So the question you should have when you're hiring is, is this person going to be one of the very best people who can hire, manage, and grow talent? If not, you should definitely not hire that person, and or you should just not hire an HR and wait until you find the right person. And then the other question you should ask is that, is your HR organization a model of an org in your company of how that org should be run? If so, then you have a great HR person. If not, then you need to level up to somebody who is great. Does the required persona for the head of HR change with the scaling of the company? It, it 
me, but it always has those functions. The head of HR should be the very best person in your company at hiring, managing, and growing talent. Now, as your company grows, as you level up some of your other execs, you may need to level up your head of HR, but it should always be the very best person at those three things. Well, Oren, since seeing you speak at Sasta, I've been desperate to have you on the show. I'm so glad we managed to make this happen, but thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much, Eric. Always some incredible learnings to be had from Oren and a huge hand to him for giving up the time today to be on the show. And if you haven't checked out his core posts yet, then that really is a must and you can find the links in the show notes below. And if you'd like to find us on social, you can find Oren on at Oren, A-U-R-E-N on Twitter or me on Snapchat at Stebbings with two Bs. It would be fantastic to see you there. But before we leave you today, I want to tell you about WePay. WePay helps online platforms increase revenue through integrated payments processing, Constant Contact, Equid and GoFund me use WePay. Why? Because WePay uniquely helps platforms offer ROI-positive integrated payments to their users within their UX and without taking on fraud and regulatory exposure. Others make you trade off between UX friction or fraud, not WePay. WePay also offers award-winning support and can even work with your team through Slack or Zendesk. Get the payments revenue you want without getting bogged down every time a user has a payments question. But don't trust me. Visit WePay.com forward slash Harry for a video case study on how Equid grew its revenue while better serving customers with WePay. That's WePay.com forward slash Harry. You'll also be made eligible for a year of free premium support with WePay.com forward slash Harry. And if WePay helps you navigate the world of payments, what about the same for mentorship? Say you hired a bunch of good engineers and the best way to retain them is to have a good leadership in place. That's where Plato can help. Plato is on a mission to help engineers and engineering managers become great engineering leaders by finding them the perfect mentor. Mentors are great engineering leaders working at Google, Facebook, Lyft, Slack, Trello, you name it. And for a monthly fee, you have unlimited mentorship, advice, and coaching from them in order to help resolving challenging management situations as they arise in real time. Simply head over to PlatoHQ.com to check it out. As always, I so appreciate all your support, and I cannot wait to bring you next week's show.